0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov.
0: This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners, and welcome to the line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. I am extremely excited to quickly share that finally my restaurant, Samisa, is open in Williamsburg. Yes, it's true, our brick-and-mortar location is open for real, seven days a week, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. As a special treat for Heritage Radio listeners, if you come in and say you are a Heritage Radio contributor, we'll give you 10% off your first meal. Of course, it's on the honor system, so if you like what you hear on Heritage Radio, please go to Heritage Radio Network work.org and then a the top right hand corner where it says show some love go ahead and help us keep delivering all this amazing content that helps get you through your day okay now on to the really fun stuff because i have an incredible guest with me today who's got a unbelievable trajectory that we're going to talk all about sheena Otto is the head baker at il Buco alimentari she also bakes all the bread for il Buco. She was born and raised in New York City's Hell Kitchen and has taken a winding road in order to land at her current job. I want this story to unfold, so listeners, I'm going to ditch the bio on this episode, and we're going to work our way through... China's journey as she sort of tells it to us. Um, I feel like I'm along for the ride too because when I, I read your bio, I thought, this is unbelievable. I wasn't even sure if this is uh, real, that someone has had this many different variety of jobs. So let's start immediately with the one that kind of jumped out at me. Uh, you previously were an investigator in the New York Police Department.
3: Um, actually, I was uh, it, as a, a civilian investigator. Okay. Um, there's a city agency called the Civilian Complaint Review Board, and uh, it's like the watchdog agency
2: for the NYPD. And what does that even consist of? A watchdog agency?
3: Um, it's instead of having uh, well, you have internal affairs, which is police officers, you know, um, battling corruption of other police officers. Uh, as a civi- having a civilian watchdog agency, it's sort of gives uh, like another check and balance to, um, you know, overseeing the police department. So we don't like the civilian complaint review board or, you know, the CCRB does not deal with some of the things that internal affairs deals with. We would um, we would investigate allegations of excessive force. Uh, You know, including uh, end up to, like, wrongful death by shooting, um, all the way down to uh, discourteous language or offensive language. Um, Whereas internal affairs would deal more with corruption
2: issues. Are you an employee of the city of New York? Yes. Okay, so it's a governmental organization to a certain extent? Yes. Okay. And does it fall under the purview of the DA's office, or is it totally separate from any, like, legal uh, organization?
3: It's... A little unclear it's a civilian agency they only recently got the power to prosecute the cases that they where they substantiate misconduct um but prior to that uh when i was working there uh, we would hand over our findings to the nypd and then it was up to the nypd itself to hand out discipline to the officers so they could they could either discipline the officer or or literally do nothing. So that they just recently got power to prosecute is uh, kind of a big deal. But it's not really – the DA deals more with um, criminals, like a a criminal complaint, whereas, like, obviously, you know, cursing at someone on the street is, you know, not nice, but it's not – you know, you wouldn't go to jail for it.
2: How did you end up in what sounds like an incredibly stressful (laughs) job that uh, is – did it cause some animosity? I mean, you are in essence part—you are sort of like part of internal affairs. You are in, investigating, or a, you're a watchdog agency over police officers. Obviously, uh, there's got to be some conflict there. They must know you, and you must know them to a certain extent, right?
3: Well, you—you you would think that, but um, honestly, there—I never really encountered any kind of real animosity where i was afraid i mean there are forty thousand, you know police officers in the city and uh you know although you know no one likes coming down you know to the ccrb because they had a complaint launched against them it's just it's i found that it's not worth it to them or their jobs to you know really express that kind of animosity it's just another um you know it's just an investigation it's just part of the job um, for them, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if that's what you were. Yeah, how did you? How did so? How did you end up at the CCRB? I, I applied. Um, I was uh, I thought in, <laughs> uh, when I was in high school, I assumed that I would just become. You know, my tra- tra- trajectory was going to be. You know, I wanted to be a district attorney, mm-hmm. so I took all the criminal justice classes and all that. And then um, when I was uh, I I met a lawyer who advised me to work. At a law firm for at least a year before i decided to you know dump a money a lot of money into law school and uh, i did i was a paralegal for two years and i was like i do not want to be an attorney mm-hmm. <laughs> at all but um i had in when i was in college i had interned at the uh, public defender's office in dc as an investigator so for the summer i would go out and interview uh you know uh, witnesses to uh you know to the cases that my defense attorney was working on and like Canvas a scene. And it was work that I really enjoyed. So when I started looking for a new job after being a, a paralegal, I saw the job listing for the CCRB and it's, you know, it was a city agency. So I applied and I talked about my previous, you know, summer internship. And
2: I mean. What spoke to you the most about that job?
3: Um, I, I guess as a native New Yorker, I was just, you know, I always am interested in, like, giving back to the community and just seeing, like, you know, what we can do, you know, what I can do to, you know, help everyone around me. And when I had applied to the CCRB, um, the the agency had just received a huge infusion of money from the city budget because of the whole uh, Amadou Diallo and um, – uh, a couple of other cases that had happened. So Giuliani was under a lot of pressure to, like, kind of regulate the police officers. At least this is how I understand it. Mm-hmm. So they had, uh, they had new money, and they could have, uh, uh, hire some extra investigators. And uh, I guess just... I still was on a quest for justice, you know, just the same way that I wanted to be, become a district attorney. So I thought that, you know, this job would be um, a good way to do that.
2: So currently... In the United States right now, there seems to be uh, a huge amount of violent incidents that are occurring. Uh, This is many years ago. You're obviously not doing this anymore. Does it bring back any uh, memories to your old job when you see the uh, huge amount, it seems to be, of highly publicized shootings of innocent – primarily men, but innocent people – all around the united states it seems like you cannot go a single day without this happening and i am not laying specific blame i'm simply just stating that as a fact that is occurring how does that um impact you as someone who used to work in this field
3: um well let's see i was with the ccrb for six years so it's hard not to think back to you know uh like the patrol guide and like what you know the officers of this city are you know when they are you know, allowed to use um, deadly force, and when they're not. So, I mean, it's something that I have been following. Um, obviously, you know, we—I'm only seeing these stories on the news along with everyone else. But mm-hmm. um, there are definitely some instances where it's like, oh, I don't know. yeah. Um,
2: Surely, seems to be some instances where the force was highly aggressive, and yeah. seems the video seems to show yeah. that. Um, I. You you mentioned that you're a native New Yorker, yes. and that part of the thing that brought you to the job was that you are born and raised in Hell's Kitchen, right? Correct. Uh, cool. So tell me a little bit about what New York was like growing up in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, I feel like now Hell's Kitchen has sort <laughs> of a... It has sort of a sexy type of vibe. It's still a little bit uncharted, but... Mm-hmm. Um, It's definitely friendly to tourists now. Was it always like that?
3: No. Um, (laughs) When I was a kid, it was, you know, you didn't really call it Hell's Kitchen because that was like, oh, gangs, you know. You just called it
2: Hell. No.
3: (laughs) (laughs) They tried to rename it Clinton after uh, uh, DeWitt Clinton and so that, you know, to try to give it a more friendly vibe. But uh, everyone, you know, it was still Hell's Kitchen. And then all of a sudden, uh, I guess after maybe mid nineties, it was cool to call it hell's kitchen again.
2: But growing up, you'd be like, Oh,
3: oh I, I, you know, I live in Clinton, you know, it's uh, you know, mid- midtown, you know, whatever. No. Uh,
2: did you, uh, did you live with your parents? What? Which, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean,
3: I, uh, I grew up with my mom, single mom and my mm-hmm. brother and uh, my grandmother also.
2: And so where did you go to high school?
3: Actually, my mom was a reporter. So okay. she, uh, we lived in Manhattan until I was about 11 and she got a job at the, uh, bridgeport post which is now defunct but she made the reverse commute for about a year and then
2: where's bridgeport it's in connecticut yeah
3: um so at that time i was you know coming into uh i was about to leave you know elementary school entering junior high and uh the schools that we were zoned for in hell's kitchen were not not you know friendly schools (laughs) i mean you know, we're talking about like daily beatings. Probably, I'm, uh-huh. I'm kind of delicate, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we moved out to Connecticut for two years, and then uh, Trumbull, Connecticut. And then, uh, actually, in high school, she um, got a job with a Newsday, Long Island Newsday. So, I went to school out in Smithtown, high
2: school. So before we went on the air, you and you mentioned, I think, actually earlier that you wanted to be a D.A. Right. Uh, Did you go to law school right out of uh, college? Did you start pursuing that career?
3: I started pursuing it. I did not go to law school. I took the LSATs and all that. Um, I pursued it by my first job. uh, My first two jobs out of college were at law firms and I was a paralegal to sort of. Uh, taking the advice of the lawyer that I worked for when I was interning in DC, she said to, before I drop a hundred grand on law school to, you know, try to work in a law firm for a Mm -hmm. little bit. So I did not go to law school, although I did start to take those steps. But then when it came time to apply, I kind of, uh, I decided
2: against it. So then at this point, so you've done the investigating, Mm -hmm. you've worked as a paralegal. Was there a part of your life as well where you worked at a hedge fund? Yes. Okay. <laughs> now let's talk about this portion of your pre-baking <laughs> career. So, uh, just kind of frame it for the listeners. What year is it? And you've already you've le- you've moved back from DC, right? And you're in New York again, and you're working for a hedge fund. E- let's see.
3: I was in school in Annapolis at St. John's College, and then I. Was at the law I came After college I came right back home To Manhattan Mm -hmm. So I worked In two New York law firms
2: Gotcha Okay
3: And then I uh, That's when I worked For the CCRB For like uh, Six years And then uh, I left it around 2007 But while I was At the CCRB Uh, Which is a tough job, you know, so to sort of boost morale I would that's when I really started baking um, at home Okay, you know, and I would just bring in like treats and everything and we all you know ate our feelings and uh, (laughs) You
2: know tried to cope as best we could Um, Rough days uh, with with brownies at the end of the day to make everybody feel good. Yeah
3: Um, and then I I went to I Decided to move to a hedge fund because uh, I was like, you know, I really I love baking like I love it and I didn't want to pursue the I knew I didn't want to be, you know, a lawyer anymore and now I was like I didn't want to go to law school anymore and you know what am I going to do and I I really didn't want to stay working for the city for much longer so I thought well You know, maybe I should open a bakery. So I thought, well, I need money, so I will go work at a hedge fund.
2: (laughs) I like that you just seem to decide what you want to do. You just say, uh, I'm going to choose the hardest jobs that I possibly can, and then you go out and then you just work at these unbelievably hard jobs. Like Paralegal is not an easy job. Hedge fund is not an easy job. Uh, How do you acquire the job at the hedge fund? What were you doing there, Uh, Mm -hmm. and how long did you end up working there for?
3: Well, that now that was about uh, two, early 2007. Okay. So everyone was rolling in money. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I when I started, I, I told them, you know, I was like, I'll start at the bottom, I'll do whatever, I'll get your coffee, it's fine. I want to, you know, work up to being an analyst or, you know, a trader on the floor or whatever, you know, I just want to get in there. So that's pretty much how I started, you know, as an assistant. And then... Um, you know reading like financial reports and it's you know uh, it was a very small hedge fund um but uh you know, the summer of 2007 was when everything peaked and then it sort of started to fall off after that. And then, you know, in 2008, like, you know, the you know, 2007, early 2008, everything, you know, obviously the housing, bubble, housing bust, market, yeah. Yeah. So um, that, was, that was probably not my best decision um, looking back.
2: <laughs> so what happens in, in 2008 when you're at the hedge fund and sort of the floor falls out underneath from all of the United States and you're a new member of this hedge fund, what yeah. happens?
3: Well, I mean, I got laid off, um, mm-hmm. you know, like so many other people did, and uh, I, uh, it was a pretty hard time, but, you know, I, I was able to make some money at the hedge fund, but as soon as, you know, as soon as I saw the numbers starting to fall off, like, as, you know, as you're, like, reading all these reports, I just started, like, saving every single penny that I had, because everyone was predicting, like, the doomsday, the apocalypse is coming, the market's going to fall below 5,000, and, I mean, I literally even though at the time like maybe it seemed a little extreme to people around me but i took zero trips i like you know ate noodles and you know ramen and and the cheapest things i saved every penny i could because i
2: was you know i knew it was i knew it was coming and uh did people around you were they in denial or did most people know that it was coming but they didn't want to change their lifestyle because you're at a hedge fund You're making Mm -hmm. good money, Mm -hmm. and perhaps a lot of people got very accustomed to their style of living and didn't want to see the red flags that Mm -hmm. were ahead of them. Honestly, my knowledge of this subject extends to the movie The Big Short, so I (laughs) I pretty much have no idea what I'm talking about, but so you seem to have seen that it was coming, and you sort of hunkered down. Yeah. Were other people around you feeling the same sort of crunch, or was everyone in denial a little bit?
3: There was both. Um, I... The most vivid moment for me was probably I was in the little kitchen, Um, you know, I just I needed a break from the phones and and just from like the free fall that the market was taking. So I went into the little kitchen, Uh, it was a shared office space, so I went to the kitchen and I was making some tea and one of the traders from an adjoining um, hedge fund, a much larger one came in and he vomited in the sink. And I was just like, this is, that is probably the day that I started eating ramen noodles. Um, but other people were like, well, you know, if we, you know, no pun intended, hedge our bets and, but there are definitely people who are, who are starting to become a lot more conservative.
2: So it sounds like a tremendously stressful situation from all levels, your job, the whole United States is worried about what's going on. Uh, are you baking at this point in your home? Uh, and are you doing it just as like a stress reliever or what, what, (laughs) what exactly is happening outside the office for you?
3: Um, I I was still baking the whole time And I tried to bring some stuff into work But, you know, my boss only ate egg white omelets And he was very, like, he was like (laughs) Get those cookies away from me And I was like, oh, this is terrible So, I mean, I was definitely still baking But now I was just giving it to my neighbors Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, stuff like that But it was, uh, yeah, so I I was baking the whole
2: time And so I want to jump way, way back uh, To early childhood Okay This (laughs) love of baking Hmm. Where does it come from?
3: Let's see. Um, I think, I mean, there was, I guess around, uh, there are no, there really aren't any like dedicated bakers in my family, but um, Thanksgiving was always a time where the entire family would kind of come together to prepare the entire meal together. And uh, there's, I mean, my family's from, from Puerto Rico and we make this thing called pasteles, which is like a tamale, but it's instead of having a corn base it's got like a like a plantain and banana and potato base and it's got like meat inside but it's a three-day process so i think my love for cooking started then but then you know they would put someone in charge of like you know a dessert or something and baking to me was always a little easier than cooking so it probably started around then
2: can you tell me about this three-day process i want to hear about how this happens (laughs) it sounds super cool i haven't heard this before it's wrapped is it wrapped in a corn husk in the same way that a tamale
3: is no it's wrapped in um it's wrapped in a banana leaf for flavor but you would also because the banana leaf doesn't really hold it like traditionally it's wrapped in banana leaf Mm -hmm. but for extra insurance you wrap it in like a parchment paper and then you tie it with string so so but, how does
2: it start off? You make a you make a mix. Why is it 3 yeah. days? Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> why can't you do it in one day? <laughs> you
3: can we we got it down to 2 days okay. eventually. Mm-hmm. But um but that's cuz we use a food processor now. But when my mom was a kid, she would tell us horror stories about how you would have to grate all the potatoes on like a box grater. But um so you make the masa or like the dough, um, which is it's a paste made of um from my notes, <laughs> 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 um, it's, uh, it's raw uh, plantains, uh, green bananas, and uh, yatia, which is taro, and um, you grind them all up together raw, and then you uh, let them like marinate overnight. So that's and then uh, that's day one, and then uh, at the same time you make the relleno, which is the filling for the pastel, and it's made of uh, pork and beef, chickpeas. And also uh, sofrito, which is made with, um, it goes with the with the filling. It uh, it's uh, ajisitos, which is a they're like small peppers, but they're not hot; they're sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, green peppers, onion, garlic, green olives, uh, cilantro, and culantro, which is not cilantro. It's also called rical, but um, it's not leafy like cilantro. It looks more like a like a longer leaf. Um, plant, but it it gives, you know, flavor to the sofrito. So that's on day one. And then on day two, you assemble everything, um, which, so you get your, uh, parchment paper. And then on top of that, you lay out your banana leaf and then you put, um, achote, which is like, uh, it's lard with a little bit of food coloring. So you can see, you know, where it is, um, on the leaf. And then you lay out a spoonful of the masa, the, uh, the paste that you made the day before and then the, uh, filling, You kind of wrap it up like a little business envelope, and then you tie it with a string. And then you can either freeze them or you boil them for about an hour. And then uh, when we make them for Thanksgiving, we make, I don't know, 100. Like, it has to last you throughout Three Kings Day. Uh So, yeah, you make a lot. So, like, the whole family comes in from, you know, out of town, wherever they've been, and it's an assembly
2: line. Is it a -a one-time-a-year thing? Does it only happen on Thanksgiving? Yes. Yeah. And so do you still do this? Is this a family tradition? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And so you go out to Connecticut and do this on Thanksgiving? No, my
3: mom is back in the city. Oh, she's back in the city. She's back in
2: Hell's Kitchen. Okay. Cool.
3: Yeah. So we go. uh, We go up there, and and, uh, you know, she's in you know back in Hell's Kitchen. Uh huh. Um, And actually, only recently was I. the chickpeas you have to skin them so skinning like all these chickpeas that was my job for the longest time because it always fell to like a kid in the family only recently was i graduated to dicing green olives and i mean dicing they just
2: let you start yeah doing they it. just <laughs>
3: let me touch the olives so that's I mean, great
2: you're like i'm a professional baker at a three-star I, <laughs> restaurant i would i can do a little bit more than this task yeah
3: but i was like can i do the meat and they're like no
2: wow <laughs> gotta work your way up to that yeah yeah uh Thank you so much for sharing that process. I'm here with uh, Sheena Otto, who is uh, now the head baker of Ilbuco Alimentari in Manhattan. In her previous lives, she was an investigator. She worked on Wall Street. She had a brief <laughs> run as a paralegal. Uh, when we return, we'll talk about her major big career change, how she started to bake, and how she ended up at Elbuco Alimentari, all that and more when we return to the line. Stick with us.
0: and this one is called relax it's just the end of the world by tax we'll be right back
1: chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table and serving produce that comes from local environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth so when shopping for your ingredients look for the new york state grown and certified seal it lets you know which food is grown right right here in new york state certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard you'll not only be serving local food you'll be supporting local farmers Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified program at certified.ny.gov.
2: Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and I am so happy to have Sheena Otto as my guest today. If you're just joining us, she's got a fascinating trajectory that has taken her from being an investigator at the CCRB, which is the Civilian Compliant Review Board. She worked at a law firm as a paralegal she worked at a hedge fund and after being laid off she started to pursue a career as a baker she is now uh the leader at one of new york city's most respected restaurant bakeries il buco alimentari before we talk about il buco uh i know that you worked at amy's and at scratch um as far as I know, Amy's is, like, a pretty sizable brand name. They have a couple locations. And Scratch was a singular location that was in bed right? Correct. It's, and it's no longer... He's been doing, like, pop-ups and stuff, but right. Scratch is no longer in bed right? Unfortunately, yeah. And so... I want you to talk a little bit about how each of those jobs benefited you, because as far as I could see in my research, they seem to be kind of polar opposites in the way that they operate as a a bakery business model. Um, If you could just talk a little bit about those differences. Sure.
3: Well, um, I guess uh, when I – before Amy's, I, you know, I live in Bay Ridge, and uh, I had been out of work for six months, um, after being laid off, and there was, like, a like, a Persian deli near me that was hiring counter staff. Um, so I, that's when I, that's my first, it's called the family store, and that was my first job in food. And I started doing, I mean, I wasn't in the back cooking or anything, but I just loved, like, you know, the the community vibe there, you know, they were, been there for 20 years and all that, so um, that was that was what kind of clinched it for me and then amy's um they were hiring overnight bakers and they her hell's kitchen location is they opened where right where i grew up um you know on 47th and 9th you know i was over on 11th avenue but uh i went in there and i you know i i mean i you know i mean i don't want to say i grew up with amy's but yeah you know we grew up with amy's like everyone was really excited when she opened and she's been there for 24 years and uh i went in there and i said i i don't have any professional experience but i will do anything like i will do anything i will come in here overnight and when i was in college i was a switchboard operator overnight so i told them i was like i know how to work overnight i know that you sleep at the same time every day and that you have to do this and you have to keep a schedule and i was like you know please I i literally begged them to please hire me and um toy who interviewed me toy was amy's partner um she kind of recognized me she was like you look so familiar and i was like oh well you know we grew up here my mom is still in the neighborhood and but i think you know she recognized me from when i was you know living there when you know when you're like a kid or a teenager after my mom moved back and you know you go through those awkward years and you're like all dramatic and you know you like complain about oh pink cake i mean it's delicious but you know pink you know Uh Um, so that was a little embarrassing for a job interview (laughs) <laughs> she was like, oh, it's nice to see that you've matured. And I was like <laughs> sweating. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Amy's um, got me in, and I loved it there, baking. I mean, even though it was overnight, we were doing all the pastry stuff. And then uh, uh, when I was at Amy's doing five nights overnight in the pastry kitchen, I noticed that they were, um, you know, and all the whole time my goal is to, like, you know, be a baker, you know, like maybe, I don't know, open a bakery someday or do whatever, you know, that's the end goal. And I noticed how much bread they were selling. So I was like, oh, I should learn how to make bread. So I asked Toy if I could intern in the Chelsea Market location when they when they were still, you know, had their production there and then they let me. So for one day a week, daytime, which was a little hard, um, one day a week I would intern in uh, Chelsea Market and then the other five nights I would be in Hell's Kitchen and then um, a spot opened up in uh, Chelsea Market, and I, I, you know, again begged, and I was like, please,
2: <laughs> please let me be awake during the daytime. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> so I did that, and then, um, and then, I mean, that I, I loved it there. I met some of my best friends there. And then, uh, they moved the operation, the whole operation, like pastry and bread. And as they were expanding, they, they're currently in Long Island city,
2: mm-hmm. which,
3: you know, I live in Bay Ridge and that's kind of far. Totally. So I started casually looking for a new job and then that's how I ended up at Atera. Um, and then scratch bread, uh, well, like Atera.
2: Don't skip over Atera, yeah, please. Oh, I won't. For the listeners, let, let them know <laughs> what Atera is. Okay. Uh, I assume Matthew Leitner was the chef there when you worked there. Yes. Okay, yeah. great.
3: Um. Okay, so yeah, so Atera, uh, Atera is a two-Michelin-star restaurant in Tribeca, uh, opened by Chef Leitner. Um, and uh, we they were super focused on, you know, uh, it was only 18 seats, um, tasting menu. Before tasting menus were really popular totally. in the city. Back in, uh, I believe we opened in March 2012. Um, but uh, I had... They hired me in the summer of 2011, and he was like, yeah, we're going to open in October of 2011. And I was like, look, I'm from the city. Like, I know, you know, how many permits you need and, like, how construction goes. And I was like, you are not opening, but, you know, whatever. Yes, chef, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, and he wanted me, He, you know, I applied for, like, the head baker position, and, you know, I brought him some bread, and he, you know, offered me the job right there. Wow. uh, Awesome.
2: So you brought him, what did you bring him?
3: I brought him a whole wheat sesame loaf and uh, just a regular white sourdough loaf and then uh, another white loaf uh, studded with pancetta. Um, And yeah, he, uh, I mean, I was.
2: And he hired you right on the spot after he tasted the bread, basically?
3: He offered me the job. And then I was like, are you sure? Because I don't really, I can, you know, I've only been doing this for a year like an idiot, you know. <laughs> um, like, really? <laughs> um, Just take the job. <laughs> right, right. And he looked at me and he was like, all right, well, think about it, but don't think about it too long. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay, sure. Um, anyway, I I looked into what he had done in Portland and they had someone compared him to per se and like i had never heard of per se which i know sounds insane but um and then i looked at the per se menu and i was like i can't do this oh my god you know this is a 300 hundred dollar tasting menu i can't i can't so that's how i came to scratch bread um before so i was still at amy's and um also starting to work on recipes for a terror but i was like i need to learn how to do small batches now like yesterday i need to do this Mm -hmm. so i um I started looking I started researching like what bakeries are small artisanal style bakeries that like could show me you know where I could learn how to do start to finish because Amy's is a quite a large production. It's artisanal style but you know you never um, you you know they have a team of mixers and a team of shapers and a team of bakers. Does it
2: have a wholesale operation uh, outside of the Amy's location as well? Everything has been condensed into the Long Island City. Okay,
3: like she brought everything. All so the it's, a ma- it's a it's
2: that's a massive operation. No? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. So I mean, there I mean, I didn't think I would be able to get the knowledge I needed for an 18 seat restaurant from Amy's was just delivering bread to like all over the metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. So. um Matt Tilden, the owner uh, of Scratch Bread, ha- was running an intern program, so I emailed him and I said, "Hey, you know," and I I told him I wanted to learn more about small batch baking, and yeah, he you know I went there for three months, and uh, that's how I that's how I I started at Scratch Bread.
2: And Scratch was doing some pretty interesting things, right? Mm-hmm. So they yeah. were doing some. I mean, can you speak to some of the sourcing? They were were they hand milling grinding were they sourcing it's a certain flowers that were kind of unique blends or something i i I don't know exactly but if you can tell the listeners specifically what was going on at scratch
3: uh when i was there they were working a lot maybe primarily with um cayuga flowers um which is farmer ground flowers upstate new york and they do a lot of um you know they have their own farm they do a lot of small batch milling and uh so those were the like it was that purveyor that he was working mainly with. Mm-hmm. And everything, you know, was um hand shaped. He had like uh he had a sourdough bread that was uh fermented for something like I I wanna say seventy two hours, which is a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, cold fermentation, um, so that you really get like that nice flavor, like that, you know, that, that sour, you know, kick that you like kinda want in like a good bread and the keeping quality was, was amazing and uh but that's... Yeah. I mean, I was only there for three months. I know there was Cayuga flowers. There, I don't... If he eventually moved into his own flower, I don't think it was when I was there.
2: Okay. Um, so you go to both these places. Mm-hmm. You learn a ton at both of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Then you jump back to Atara. Mm-hmm. What was your contribution like to Atara in terms of uh, baking? Were you doing breads for the start of the meal? How did it incorporate it in the tasting menu? Were you doing... Um, Sweet as well. Were you doing savory breads? Mm. What What were you exactly were you doing at Atera?
3: Um, so the, it was a like a twenty two course tasting menu. Um, I was doing about uh, probably ten breads a day. Um, three of the breads would be like part of the tasting menu, and they had their own cultured butter that they would serve with it. Um, and then after the opening of the restaurant upstairs, they opened the Atera Lounge in the basement, which mm-hmm. was a kind of a more casual place. You could get drinks and a burger um and fries and i did the buns for that um i didn't do any desserts it was just literally just they had their own bread program so um probably the most famous bread that i made there was the pork fat roll mm-hmm. which was a sourdough roll and it was basted in pork fat and it was uh, i came up with it because uh, chef Leitner asked me he said oh so i i want a roll that you don't want to butter and I was like, well, I don't know what that means. He says, I want a roll that you don't want to put butter on. And then he leaves. And I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, so it has to have some kind of fat in it already. I was like, oh, we got this, uh, you know, lard laying around. Let's, uh, see, what we, let's
2: see what happens. <laughs> awesome. So how long did you stay at Atera? And then when did you decide to move on to being Kui?
3: Um, I was at Atera for about three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And... uh uh, so I worked a little bit with uh, Chef uh, Ronnie Emborg when he came on. Um, and I kind of, like, at, at the three-year mark, I was kind of like, this is great and everything. But I really missed working in a bakery. Um, I mean, it was, you know, it's a, it's a restaurant kitchen. Uh, I just kind of wanted to get back to, like, a larger production. Not like a monster production, but just something a little more than, you know, 24 rolls for dinner service. Um, so... Uh It seemed like a good time to transition when they were like transitioning chefs, since like the whole menu was going to change anyway, and stuff like that so uh Bianqui was hiring uh and i you know I applied and I went in for an interview and everything and uh that 's when I became the sous chef at Bianqui.
2: I have gone to Bianqui a lot because <laughs> I used to work on Hoyt Street, which is one block over, and there is uh this mees loaf that oh, they have which yeah. like haunts my Dreams. I'm so sad that I don't really get to have that every single day. But I'm a huge fan of just eating bread by itself, Mm -hmm. which I – maybe you don't think that's weird, but I think a lot of people see me eating just a baguette plain, and they think that that is weird. But for me, the flavors of the bread is enough. Um, When you are thinking about a new bread that you're going to be working on, do you think of it as a standalone item, or do you think of it as a – more of like a composite of how people will use the bread like do you, do you think uh this bread is good enough to eat by itself or are you always thinking about how someone is going to utilize it for like a sandwich or whatever they might use it for
3: both honestly um if uh i mean at at a at a terra it would you know a lot of times they would tell me we need this for a dish mm-hmm. so you know i would i might lower the salt a little bit you know if i knew it was going to be like have some kind of salty topping but right now i i make it as a standalone bread but if it's meant to be you know if it's a loaf that's a sandwich loaf i don't want to have like an overpowering flavor of you know some add-in do you know what i mean yeah like, i wouldn't add like a ton of uh, i don't know fennel seeds for mm-hmm. example um, if it, if it was meant to be a sandwich loaf, but, uh, I, so yeah, I, I think mostly as a standalone bread, cause I eat, pl- I eat bread plain also, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I just, yeah. Someone will put a little olive oil or butter in front of me and I'm like, I don't know, I'm good.
2: I'm not really a potato chip or a cracker person, but I will eat a whole <laughs> loaf of bread by myself, standing, sitting in front of the TV, whatever. Um, what types of, uh, bread styles are you working with now at Obuco that are really exciting you? Uh, what uh flavors are you putting into the breads and what kind of flowers are you working with at El buco
3: well we just uh, we just recently started um, sourcing Anson mills flowers um, we I have a we just started uh, selling them for retail and we're the only we're actually the only place in New York City that is retailing Anson mills uh, grains but I guess the, uh, I'm making a buckwheat rye right now. It's uh, a one and a half kilo loaf. It's a free form boule, which is just like a round loaf. And uh, I like that one because the, uh, it's just, you know, there's only, you know, buckwheat and rye and, you know, some flour, you know, and yeast. Not yeast, I'm sorry, it's naturally fermented, but like salt and water. And just when you get these, Amazing grains like that, and you can just add, you know, uh, water and salt to them, and then you just get the natural flavor of the grain. That that's exciting to me. So I'm kind of moving back to, um, I mean, it, the whole. I guess the whole philosophy of Abuco is to just, if you're going to pay all this attention to your product, you know, we're going to shape it by hand, and we're going to use, you know, this long fermentation. Like you might as well use the best ingredients. So. Mm-hmm. Coming back to that is is really exciting. Um, we are also starting to source some Italian flowers like from Sicily, which is is pretty amazing too
2: i uh, I love the chemistry of baking. It seems like such a confusing process to someone who doesn't bake, perhaps to someone who's been baking professionally <laughs> as well there uh, There is so much that goes into a loaf of bread. Um, I find it to be a lot more confusing than cooking a protein or or working with vegetables, uh, there's so much about temperature and storage. Uh, Can you speak a little bit about natural fermentation for the listeners that are just totally unclear of of what that means uh, in reference to making a more standardized bread loaf that uses uh, yeast where you're getting just like a traditional rise out of it?
3: Well, uh, so natural fermentation is when you start a sourdough culture from flour and water, and uh, just the nat- like yeast lives everywhere. It's it's just it's on the table. It's on It's on us. It's you know it's it's alive in nature, and so you kind of cultivate it from you know the wheat grains that you that you get, and it and after you know hopefully if nothing you know horrible happens like a bacteria contaminates it, after about two weeks you'll have a viable sourdough starter, and um, this this provides like a, a flavor. You know to the bread and there, I mean there's a lot of chemical reactions in there going on um, that I don't you know I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I don't fully understand
2: <laughs>
3: um, it's been around for 6,000
2: years so I'll probably never fully understand right but that's actually part of the kind of exciting yeah. part is that you can't actually maybe <laughs> really ever understand it uh. but um, I guess
3: to compare it to a tri- like a commercial yeast I mean you get the same I mean, obviously, commercial yeast will leaven a loaf of bread, but the flavor, the complex, the complexity of the flavors are not there. There's not, like, the same amount of, you know, acids and bacteria forming from a naturally fermented loaf than with, like, a yeasted loaf. I'm not sure if that answers your question or... If-
2: totally, yeah. Okay. Uh, you have had many different jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have a sort of laser focus when you want to do something. It seems like you go after it and you get it. Do you feel like you found your home in baking?
3: I think so. Yeah. I, I love it. Like, I love it. And you kind of have to love it because the hours are crazy and it takes a toll on your body, but it's a labor of love. I mean, even if you're having you know, a bad day or, you know, it's not like, you know, something happens in the kitchen or whatever. Once that, once the loaves come out of the oven and like, you know, you smell that aroma and, you know, you, you, you know, you, you bite into it or, or, you know, you have that first slice. Like it's, it's just, it makes it all worth it. So yeah, I, I have, once I started baking, like I have never doubted it, like in the other jobs.
2: You said that, I mean, I know that you start at three (laughs) in the morning. So you mentioned (laughs) earlier before we went on that, uh, you know, you're, it's sort of a solitary life. You said that you want to get dinner with your friends and a late dinner for you is like five or six (laughs) o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I love that moment when I get to the kitchen early before everyone else. Mm -hmm. I turn on the lights, you turn on the oven, Mm -hmm. kind of like the master of, of the room. For me, other people show up at a certain point, and for you, really, it's you and really only one other person. And you said on your on that person's day off, you're all by yourself. Right. Um, is that a part of the job that you uh, that you love? That that sort of solitary, like it's only on you. <laughs> it
3: it has it's it can be good and bad. I mean, I like I definitely like having you know being able to hear my own thoughts and like you know get my things together and like work at you know you know knowing that like if that i'm in charge of everything so that you know what i mean like so if uh i can set my own schedule and you know set my own pace and do what needs to be done um and you know people start arriving you know later in the morning also but also i mean the, the negatives to it is that you know it is you know kind of like you kind of get off work when people are still working you know it is kind of a solitary life and i mean you know yeah you miss your friends when you know they're like out at dinner without you (laughs) you know or if uh you know uh you want to do something later at night and you kind of have to think about like okay well let me see if i can take a nap here and then you know try to wake up but um it's definitely got its pluses and minuses but i think overall the good definitely outweighs like any like minor inconvenience it's a
2: true flavor of love (laughs) in order to be in that kitchen baking bread uh Sheena, thank you so much for joining us. This (laughs) was so awesome to hear your story. everyone listening out there you can go to Ilbuco Alimentari or Ilbuco to taste her great breads uh, and if you feel like it she's there at three in the morning you can, fi- <laughs> you, can you can you can find her there uh, working uh, all the time uh, but please drop by her restaurant and check out some of her uh, wonderful breads that she's baking Thanks again for being with us and thank you for joining us on this episode of the line every Tuesday on Heritage Radio at 11 a.m.